Welcome to Check the Showtimes. I'm Matt. I'm Sarah. And this is a weekly podcast where we talk about the latest in movies and TV. If you want, catch up on our episode that we did last week about Stranger Things Season 3 and Euphoria Season 1. This week's a movie episode. We're going to talk about Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which has had a bunch of success and also a bit of cultural backlash, I would say. And it's going to be really interesting to see the trajectory of that movie moving forward as we head into Oscar season. Mm -hmm. We also are going to talk about The Farewell, which is an independent release that has slowly worked its way through theaters to a nationwide status over the last two to three weeks. And we're also going to talk about Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, PG-13 horror release that that debuted to, I would say, pretty decent success last weekend at the box office, yeah. and now... I think it, it overperformed. Yeah. And it kind of continues a trend this summer, which is interesting because there's all of these releases that come out every summer that are the fifth and the sixth installment of whatever right. franchise. You know, Men in Black International, notoriously bombed. X-Men Dark Phoenix, notoriously also bombed. And you know what those two movies have in common? They were really poorly reviewed. But then you get these kind of movies like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, that are getting good reviews, and they get good buzz, and people go see them. So I, I kind of think that a lot of this conversation that keeps happening about how the summer box office is dying, it's really just that the movie industry needs to make good movies. Yeah, they're not they're not putting original movies out in the summer. They're putting out you know big blockbuster franchise movies, which people are just kind of getting tired of. Right, unless it's a Marvel movie, but all of the Marvel movies are, at the very least, pretty competent. Right, right. Yeah, they're entertaining, they're good, they usually get good reviews. Exactly. But then, you you know, you get the DC Universe, which it should be on equal footing with Marvel, and yet they make considerably less money because they're poorly reviewed. Yeah, they're just not as good. So, let's start with Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, because it is... It's not an original property. It's based on a series of 80s and 90s short stories. Oh, did you look it up after the movie when I told you it's based on a book? Yeah, so you I had, had no, no idea. idea. I, I read them as a kid with my parent, with my mom, I think. I talked about this movie with my brother uh, after I, I saw it. I saw him, and I mentioned it to him, and I said, there's this movie that came out that's based on, because like you said, I didn't know going in, and he said he had read them as a kid. So I must have just been completely lost as to this thing that I guess or everybody... Or maybe you read them, you just don't remember. Right. But apparently what made them famous wasn't just the text, but also these illustrations that came with the book. Right. Apparently they were really creepy illustrations. So the making of this movie, Guillermo del Toro was attached to it. He's a co-writer on it and a producer on it. Mm-hmm. And they decide to adapt... Basically, what is like a scarier, more teen versus preteen version of what I guess you would kind of say about Goosebumps? Yeah, they're similar. I guess so. I didn't see actually see that though. The Goosebumps movie? Mm-mm. I think I did. I'm pretty sure I saw the first one at least. And what they do is they take four or five of these short stories and they put them into an overarching narrative. And so. If you've read the short stories, you will recognize certain things that happen to individual characters as the movie moves along. Okay. But the the over like I said, the overarching thing is they they found a way to blend like four or five of these short famous short stories. It's together. just funny because I feel like the age range for the book is younger than the movie. 
at least I think when I read them, it must have been middle school. But maybe that's just because I had a high tolerance to things like that. Right. I don't know when your brother read them, but certainly this is targeted towards high schoolers, and the book is def- is definitely younger than high school. He read them probably between the age of like eight and ten. Yeah, and that's he was what I'm saying. That's of like them. elementary middle school. Right. Where this is PG thirteen. So you're not going unless you're in high school, probably. I think the, this movie's crowning achievement in terms of what it does correctly. And it and it's a flawed movie. It's not great. It's But it's decent. And it... I really liked it. I, I definitely... I thought at the very least that it was a, a competent movie. But what I think it did really well was it can be an introduction to horror for people that haven't maybe got gotten into the genre before. You know, people yeah. that are 12 or 13 and, and haven't really been exposed to their first horror movie. I think this movie is like a really good example of what you could show them because there are jump scares, but it's not overly reliant on jump scares. Right. There are really good tense scenes that really worked for me where they w- were pretty tense. Pretty... Right, but nothing goes so far where it's right. like terrifying. Right, um, and it doesn't get super gory. There's no blood. Right. Or anything like that. And it's all, like the people just disappear. Exactly. It's not like they find their mangled body or like you see them get stabbed to death. I mean, they do presumably get killed, even though it seems like they're going to try to make a sequel. Yeah. Yeah. But they kind of just disappear, you know, via these creepy ways. I mean, I think it's cool because each of the characters who ends up getting taken or going missing or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, there's a they kind of employ a different horror strategy. So. Yes. And these are, we're going to spoil this. It's been out for a couple of weeks now, right? Yes. Yeah. So if you don't want to hear about it's what happens to the characters. It's also based on source material, so. Yeah, I know, but source material people read when they were 10. Sure. I don't remember any of these stories. Right. But the first guy, he kind of turns into a scarecrow. Which I loved. But but it was very cool because it was kind of more horror, sci-fi-y, like a little more campy. But then... There's one where a guy just kind of gets taken under his bed. Right. And that one's much more about tension. There, it, There's a jump scare, I guess, when he gets pulled under. But, like, it's more of... The way they shoot him with the bed. Yeah, I'm saying, and... like, each time someone disappears, they, they employ a different method. And exactly. then when the yeah. girl, I forget her name, the sister... Ruth. Of one of the main, yeah, Ruth. Ruth. When she almost gets taken or whatever, that one is much more horror. Body horror. Yeah, yeah. like with the spiders and everything. Like, I, I don't know. I thought that was really cool the more you think about it. And then there was the last one where there was just this freaky looking person, creature thing that kind of just absorbed the guy. And that was right. very... I would say that was psychedelic horror where he's surrounded kind of by all corners. It yeah, was kind like, of Stanley Kubrickish. Yeah, or... and then we have the body horror, and then you have just the suspense mm-hmm. and the tension. And then you get kind of like a ghost story element where the lead character, the girl, yeah, uh, as she's exploring this mansion, and I'll talk about the plot in a minute, but she is exploring the mansion, and that reminded me a lot of, like, Haunting of Hill House. Yeah. Where she was in the decrepit mansion, but she started seeing visions of what it was like when it was fully restored. Yeah, that was cool. Mm-hmm. Which oh, is yeah, you're right. That's kind of what, that's what happens in, in Hill House. In, in Hill House, which, being someone who first watched that show for the first time this year and absolutely adored that show, I thought it was f- fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was really great that they that they did that. 
The plot's pretty simple. It's just local urban legend that is about this character, this young girl who was locked in the basement of her home. And so local kids would come to the house and knock on the on, on the wall and they would say, tell me a scary story. And apparently she would tell a scary story and it, the stuff that she told would actually happen to the people. Yeah. And so when they when the kids in this movie decide to go into the haunted mansion. Yeah, it's or whatever, abandoned now. Abandoned mansion. They find the book, basically the equivalent of scary stories to tell in the dark. And what they notice is because they came in contact with where her this girl's spirit was and they took her book and they took her book it starts writing stories by itself about them and so that's how you get the individual vignettes from the original story put into the movie because each of the characters starts having a little mini story in the book written about them yeah and i really like that i thought that 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 was cool so like you said there was the scarecrow one with the guy from euphoria coincidentally yeah which was a weird casting because he was supposed to be kind of a jock type bully type person and he is just small and scraggly looking and i don't know i didn't really buy it he convincingly played kind of a geeky character in euphoria and it was odd to see him as the drunk jock in this. yeah and he seemed to be drunk the entire time he, he wasn't in the movie very long but the whole time he was pretty drunk Right. Which I didn't, we never actually saw him drink. You only get confirmation that he's drunk by his mom kind of calling him out that he's been drinking again. But you never mm-hmm. actually see him drink anything that I can remember. But he he's really, I don't know, portraying the character in a strange way. So I thought that was kind of weird. I mean, he was a total jerk mm-hmm. to the, the, the main character's group. He locks them in the basement and that's how they kind of all get caught up in this because he's there as well bullying them i guess once they're in the house right but to be fair they did throw a bunch of eggs and toilet paper and stuff at his car and a flaming bag of dog poop at him while he was driving yeah i'd be pretty mad too locking them in a basement is not that bad but then an abandoned basement yeah true they would have never gotten out except that the spirit let them out the other actors in this the kids are not other than that one guy Austin Abrams yeah, is the actor. Yeah, I don't think I thing. recognized anybody else. No, I recognized the one kid, Augie, who's the tall kid. He was he's been in bit parts for Wes Anderson before, but very brief. Yeah. Like you only see his face on screen for a couple minutes. Everybody else is pretty normal. The main girl's father is Dean Norris, Hank from Breaking Bad. Oh yeah, that's that's why that's he's the, the biggest most famous person in this. person in the movie, uh, and he's only in a couple scenes. But there's a. Uh, there's the classic, you know, father is alone because the mom left and the girl's traumatized by it and that's her backstory. And, you know, they, they all have little backstories about, I guess, what kind of makes them who they are. I I thought all the kids were pretty good. Yeah. Whenever they had to be too emotional or, or too scared, it occasionally felt unbelievable. There's a scene with the main girl uh, played by Zoe Coletti who she has to, like, really emote at the end of the film, and it's it's not super believable, but, I mean, she's a yeah, young look, actress. It's okay. They're not great, and I would say throughout the first, like, half hour of this movie, I was vindicated. I was thinking, like, I had told you that this was going to be bad because it was going to be a four-kids horror movie, and that never really ends up great. Right. Um, and in the first 30 minutes, I'm like, I'm right. This is It was fun bad, but it was bad. And then I would say it got substantially better once all the story started. I completely agree, actually. I thought the beginning was kind of tough to watch. It was... Because they're not great actors, and it just came off very awkward. 
I felt like. But then once they got into it, all the individual stories were very interesting and just the way, I think this is probably credit a lot to Guillermo del Toro, all the aspects of in the horror aspects were so cool. They were so well mm-hmm. done. And outside of a couple wonky CGI elements, it, it was all done pretty well. They could have been really dumb. Like the guy who turns into a scarecrow. That, that was really That well could done. have been really dumb, but you can see the creature design in mm-hmm. there of how he kind of, you know, transitions into the scarecrow and then kind of disappears. So I thought those parts were really well done. Yeah, there were some CGI elements, like the guy who crumbled and then was put just like back made together. of body parts. Yeah. But I thought it was fine. Like, that was fine. It didn't bother me because it still, it wasn't like we were watching Alien. Like, it wasn't a serious horror movie. It was right. it's still for kids. So I, I didn't feel like, I think they tried to make the elements slightly goofy while still being extremely unsettling. Maybe, I think that that's a good way to rationalize it. Although I will say there has been times in Guillermo movies Previously, like I'm thinking of Crimson Peak, where I sometimes thought the visuals were bizarre and they didn't really. Crimson Peak didn't really get great reception, though, did it? I don't know. I think like probably mixed reception. It 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 doesn't really have much of a legacy. Nobody really talks about it, even though we were stoked when we went in to see it originally. Yeah, but I remember being disappointed. I was disappointed with it as well. Yeah, and I mean, I would say honestly, I don't mind the the CGI of the one of the creatures that is just pretty much this guy who's made of body parts and he can assemble his, himself and he's like it yeah twists and turns and kind of walks on four on his yeah, arms and fine. legs i thought that was fine i like that they took the risk of that kind of original design of a creature the thing that i didn't like actually was at the end when they confront the spirit of the girl and she's a woman now. oh it was every other woman in a dress that's a ghost yeah that, every was, other that was my least favorite part and my and my least favorite of the scares yeah i only enjoyed that i completely agree i thought when she finally confronts the ghost it was she didn't even really say anything or yeah she was just like i'll tell your story yeah i don't know there's kind of this meta narrative about how stories can be scary but stories can also heal that's kind of the thing yeah that they talk about it's like the opening line they say that yeah and so that I guess the idea in the in the film is that you know this ghost lady is telling these stories that end up coming true and harming the characters, but at the same time, if her, if her, she's properly represented about what actually happened to her, those stories can heal her kind of broken demonic spirit or whatever. Yeah, which is so. like whatever. That's cute, I guess. Sure. But I I didn't get the sense at the end that she that the ghost was gonna stop. She was just gonna maybe leave these particular people alone i kind of got that feeling as well i'm not really sure i will i guess we'll see they they definitely leave multiple avenues yeah which i get that because it did do well so they want to pursue pursue it and and the ending of a horror movie is the hardest part to do because you try to wrap it up in a way that's meaningful or sentimental especially when it's something geared towards kids and that's just never really gonna come across quite right i i completely agree one, one final thing. The actual director of this is Andre Overdahl from Norway. Okay. And his top credit that I see other than this movie is a movie called The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Have yeah, you seen that? Yeah, I've seen that. that. It's on Netflix. Is it good? It's good. It takes place like almost entirely in a morgue. Oh, okay. It always would come up on my Netflix recommended that makes sense for you. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I watched it, and it, it was better than uh, I thought it was going to be. 
So, you, I mean, if that if he's two for two, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, I think this, you know, if he goes down this path, he could probably make some more pretty successful movies. Would you watch the sequel if it comes out? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, me too. Yeah, it was interesting enough, and I really liked the horror elements, even if the acting wasn't the best, or maybe the the rest of it wasn't the best, the dialogue between the kids and stuff, and the kind of haphazard put-together stories and relationships between them. But I think they can build on that in the second movie and kind of make it more fleshed out, if that's uh, yeah. what they want to do. And, and you know, credit to this movie, most PG-13 horror is spineless jump scares because they're afraid to do anything yeah. actually scary. And I thought that this movie, there were a couple moments where, I mean, I got, like, chills a little. Like, there yeah, were a few I mean, moments. I, I like <clears throat> when they are good at building tension, and I like when they're really confident in the creature they've created and that it's unsettling and creepy. That's a great that, point. That they linger on the creature, and you're still scared. Because a lot of times, just like with the cre- the woman at the end who was the least scary of all the, sure. the ghouls or whatever, um, just like every other movie where the, the villain in the horror movie is just some old lady ghost, they're, they're never scary. So if you yeah. linger on them, you're just going to be totally taken out like of it. Like that movie Mama that neither of us liked. Yeah, like you're just going to be totally taken out of the whole thing and, be, and realize that this isn't scary at all and it's kind of dumb. Mm-hmm. But with these, the way they did it, like the scene where the, the big human-looking creature was walking towards the guy there in a hospital right Mm -hmm. and he and she's coming at him from all different directions but that's like five minutes of that and And it was really good and it's really good and freaky so i don't know i appreciate that and i think that's a great point about the creature design i completely agree like they're confident in the creature design and it's scary it's original it's unsettling where they don't have to quickly pan from jump scare to jump scare to avoid you spending too much time looking at the the devil in the corner. Right, and they're so confident in the creature design that all the posters for the movie have Hank the Scarecrow. Yeah. On the on the actual poster. Yeah, yeah, I really liked it. I'm looking forward to a sequel. I'm looking forward to more things like this because I think that the audience is pining for horror movies that mean more or and are quality yeah and that are quality instead of these cheap jump scares and i think like this movie reminded me and i'm sure drew inspiration in its funding and everything from stranger things you know a group of kids oh yeah together i'm hoping that the success of stranger things has kind of opened up a new avenue for that kind of movie or that kind of show where we can make something scary, unsettling, creepy in the horror genre, but still have it be centered around characters and relationships and have it be a little bit more meaningful than just, you know, something covered in blood or, right. you know, the in the Conjuring movies where sometimes the the demon is literally just a red devil. I know. I was, I was actually just about to say, going outside the scope of what horror movies have largely become, which are either gore fest and disgusting and often are straight to Netflix Which not or whatever. to knock those. I do like I to watch those. I do like to watch you those know, on Eli Netflix. Eli Roth kind of movies. Or like the Terrifier. Oh, if no. you like gore, you should yeah. look that up on Netflix. <laughs> or if, you know, it, the other the other part of it is the the James Wan of the world. Yeah. The the jump scare. I'm so sick of the I'm Conjuring so movies. Sick of the I would Conjuring much movies. rather watch movies that are like this is way better than this yeah. than like the Conjuring movies. I'm so sick of those formulaic horror movies that. Well, we just watched Curse of La Llorona. That was horrible. Yeah, but I don't even. I know they count that in the Conjuring universe, but 
I just think of it as a bad movie. Sure. It's not. I guess it's linked to them, but Conjuring is a whole other discussion I could have. But we recommend this movie. Yeah, I would. I would agree. I think we would. Even if you're not totally into horror, it's more than that, and it's fun. You want to give a score out of five? I'd give it a four. I would say three and a half. So yeah, we're pre- we're on the same page. This is totally worth recommending. I would say. Yeah, and you know, I mean, horror is right up my alley. So why, whenever we get any kind of decent horror that comes out in a theater, I'm so in. So let's talk about The Farewell. The Farewell is a movie directed by Asian filmmaker Lulu Wang, who tells a story of a girl named Billy, played by Aquafina, mm-hmm. who has been in music and movies in the U.S. for, I don't know, the last five years or so. She's kind of built up a bit of a presence. She was in... Crazy Rich Asians and Notions Aid and yeah, I think Crazy Rich Asians was like her breakthrough into film, right? From being a rapper, she's a rapper, I think. And this movie takes place uh, primarily in China, but yep. what gets them there is Billy is probably in her early twenties. It seems like she probably just finished college, so let's say she's twenty. Four-ish. No, I think she's older than that. I feel like she's like 30 and oh, she's really? spinning her wheels. Okay. So, yeah, so that's kind of where Billy's at. She's living in a in New York City, but struggling. She is a writer? She's applying to various fellowships, so I think that's probably true. Yes, but she's not getting them. She's getting rejection letters. She's kind of spinning her wheels. Mm-hmm. She, you know, she's not with anybody. She... She kind of feels alone is how they portray it when they're in New York City. Her parents are nearby, but it's just her and her parents. And she has a bit of a tense relationship with her mother, so. Yeah, so what the main plot of the movie is, is that Billy finds out that her grandmother, who lives in China, Mm -hmm. who always lived in China, is was diagnosed with cancer. And the doctors give her three months or something like that. So she talks to her grandmother on the phone every day. They show they show us that they have a close relationship, even though, you know, they haven't seen each other in a long time. And I think the grandmother has two sons, one being Billy's dad, who moved to the States with the daughter when she was six and the mom. And then yep. the other um, brother, he and his family moved to Japan. So the mom yeah. is kind of alone. She has her sister. She has extended family, but her immediate family they haven't been to they haven't all been in China together for 25 years is right. what they say. So Billy finds out that her mom that her grandmother's sick, but what she learns is that no one has told her. And for her that's really confusing being someone who pretty much grew up in the US. Right. Um but there's a tradition in Chinese culture which I don't know how much it happens, but they made it seem like it's not fairly common. It's it's not uncommon where they don't actually tell someone when they're that ill that they're that sick and that they're, you know, going to die soon. They don't, the doctors don't tell them. They kind of keep up this facade and they update the family and then right. they all lie together to them. So she has lung cancer and the the doctors go along with saying that she has benign shadows in her lungs. Yeah. And that you like know. she's recovering from pneumonia and right. that's what the medicine's for. Yeah. So basically the, the rationalization that the, her Chinese relatives give is that they feel like, as her family, it's their responsibility to bear the burden of knowing that she's going to die and that she shouldn't have to bear that burden of right. of dealing with death in that way. So that's the central plot and kind of what drives everything. But it drives a lot of subplots, too. So Well, what, the reason that they all go there, they, they disguise yeah. it as a, as a wedding. Yeah, so they... I don't know if the people actually got married or not, but, <laughs> I, I, yeah. but they... Her cousin, her yeah, first cousin. Yeah, her cousin is, is getting married. 
but to someone he's only known for a few months. But it's kind of all a ruse that the family is putting on. Right, so that they everyone, rush them into it so that... The, everyone has a chance to right. s- see the grandmother again. Which was heartbreaking as you're watching it. Because uh, the younger generation especially has a hard time holding it together mm-hmm. when they're all in China together. And the grandmother will say things that... Either just normal grandmotherly things, like, oh, do you have a boyfriend and stuff Mm -hmm. like that? But then sometimes she would say things about the future, and you can see that it's hurting the family members because they know that she's dying. The the big line that got me was when she was talking to the grandmother, and the grandmother was like, don't worry, I'm going to care even more about your wedding. I'm going to make it amazing for you, you know, and you have your wedding. And it's like, you know, with her limited diagnosis, obviously... Prognosis. A lot of the future, right, a lot of the of the future planning that the grandmother talks about is, as she goes through this movie, small, even from small things to what, the next time I see you right. kind of conversations are heartbreaking. I just think that the that aspect of the movie was done so well. The idea of the, gre- the characters clearly showing grief but trying to put a positive face on it so that they could enjoy their, potentially the last time that they see... Right. Their family member. And it, and it's not just the... You're right. The youngest generation is the one who's the worst at keeping it together. But there are also really touching scenes with both brothers. Yeah. Both of her kids. One of them gives a speech at the wedding that's really sad. Yeah. When he kind of thanks his mom for everything. And, you know, when, when Billy first finds out, her dad is basically despondent about it in the very beginning right. of the film. So. I th- I thought that that everything there was done really well, and I thought that the movie did a really good job at showing us a juxtaposition between the United States and Chinese culture. Yeah, I mean that was the greater overarching kind of conflict that was happening right. was they had moved to the U.S. and you know a lot of people remained in China. The other siblings moved to Japan, so there was just a lot of conversation around the different opportunities that you have in in each place and what it's like in each place and the the differences in mentality. So even though Billy was born in China, she grew up in the U.S. So Mm -hmm. her ideas are very Western. And it's centered around this one issue, but they do bring up other things as well, like success. Work habits, yeah. Yeah, stuff like that and going to school and the opportunities and making money and all that. But it's really more about... And how the uncle explains it to Billy is that the difference between the East and the West is that in the West, everyone thinks of themselves as individuals. They're more focused on themselves, where in the East, everyone is part of a greater whole, I think is what he says. So that's why they view everything so family oriented. And, you know, they're carrying this burden for her where in the U.S., you wouldn't even legally be allowed to. Withhold the to withhold that kind right. of information from someone, you'd have to tell the doctor. Couldn't keep that a secret. So it was really interesting how they used that pretty extreme example to to discuss kind of how you view yourself in the world and how your life matters or not in the grand scheme of things and the idea of family. and. I loved the family dynamics in this movie. I thought everything was really well executed from the awkward relationship that she had with her cousin that she barely saw but was also her age to the relationship that was very tender and loving with her grandmother to the relationship with her mother. Obviously, the parents put pressure on her and she rebels a little bit against that pressure. There's a lot of really great family dynamics that despite... The foreign country, despite 
the foreign culture, despite this idea of, of family first over individualism, like you mentioned, that some of the threads of how the characters interacted felt so true to life and so Yeah, it was normal. still relatable because there were still, you know, those relationships which everybody has within their family. Right. I want to pinpoint two shots in this movie that I really loved. One was uh, when Billy tries to stop the grandmother's, I don't know the relationship, it was maybe aide or housekeeper or whatever from getting the medical records from the hospital, the basically the unadulterated versions. Yeah. And Billy runs from right to left across, I don't know, maybe 15 blocks of the Chinese city that they're in. And the way that they film it, it makes the eye feel really unnatural because uh, we read left to right. But when you're looking at her running from right to left over this long strain, it's like you can tell the kind of it. I think it adequately conveys the emotional weight of the scene because the way that the it shot feels really unnatural to your eye mm-hmm. as you're looking right to left. And the other thing I really liked consistently was this little bird that appears throughout the film think, and then yeah, I think it only happened twice it did it happened once in her apartment in New York and it happened once at her hotel room in mm-hmm. China and it's interesting that the this shot that they show as soon as she finally leaves her grandmother and they pull away the final shot in China is a tree that has birds on it and the birds all take off into yeah. the sky I thought that that was really do- well done it was almost like the bird was a comforting presence for her of like what her grandmother represents to her and I thought that 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 kind of stuff elevates movies like this for me where like they're telling a kind of comforting or interesting or introspective story and they're also doing it through visual cues which I thought was really well done in this movie I think this movie was like profoundly competently made for me Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I really liked it. And it was actually, it's based on a true story. And when the credits roll, they tell you that she, the real woman is still alive. And she was diagnosed six years six ago. Years ago and she's yep. still alive. Do you know that that... I guess they, they must have told her at this point. That actor, according to Letterboxd, has never acted in anything before. The, the grandmother. grandmother. She was she's great. great in this. She's really good. She is low-key the best part of the movie. She is. Aquafina's great as the lead, but the grandmother steals every scene she's in. Yeah. She, everything she says is hilarious. It really is. It's like the epitome of a, an old person who old says woman. whatever they want. Right, exactly. Which was great because it, it makes it relatable to you. So even though they're all speaking Chinese and in China, you know, she's acting like every other grandmother that you've seen on screen or in your own life. So I will say that that's the one potential, and it's tough to call it a flaw, but... I definitely feel like if there's one downside to this movie, even though I really enjoyed it, it was that I was not quite as emotionally invested in the end as I probably should have been. And I think that the reason for that is probably that I spent a lot of time reading the dialogue, and I think that there's a slight disconnect if you don't speak the native language that the film is directed in, where you can't quite get entirely into the emotional weight of the film. And that's not a criticism, but that's just in terms of how I subjectively felt about the movie. Yeah, I, I wanted it to make I didn't me cry. get like choked up or anything at the end where really the whole plot is pretty dark and depressing and upsetting. And yeah. I didn't really feel upset at all. And I think that's fair. I think that reading subtitles just takes you out of the emotional aspect of it a little bit, even if you're even if it's not bothering you and you, it can become second nature as you're watching it, just right. 
does interrupt that a little bit, but. I would say, but this is still for me a full, it's a full recommend for me though. This is one of the better movies of the year. Um, I hope that it sticks around in terms of maybe having an indie avenue to the Oscars. I think that there are some aspects of it that are worthy of that. Yeah, it could, it could. I think it's, it's, it's wonderfully reviewed. It's I wouldn't very, count it out right. for sure. So I, I would say four out of five for this. I would, I would, yeah, I would say four. Yeah. I think I would give it a four similar to the, the first movie we talked about, but I would definitely rather watch the other movie again. I will never, I don't think I'd ever watch this again. Okay. Type of thing. You know what I mean? I could see this being a movie that I recommend to people and I watch with them because I liked it enough. Yeah, I don't think I would. Doesn't mean it wasn't good. And finally, let's talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's been out for probably three or four weeks now. And yeah. it's gotten good reception from critics, but it also has sparked some divisive commentary online, I would say. And it's something that I feel like if you listen to any media about this subject, you know, you, you'll get one person on the panel saying that they loved the movie and one person on the panel talking about how they found the movie extremely problematic and I don't know I wouldn't go wouldn't go that far. I don't think if you have two people on a panel, one of them's gonna love it and one of them's gonna hate it. I think that there's a select group of people who are picking out things from the movie and making them into bigger things rather than just kind of taking the movie as a whole and also taking Tarantino's work as a whole. So right. I'm sure it's been out for a while now, so I'm sure most people know the plot of it. But basically, it follows Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton. Mm-hmm. He's a fictional person, but he used to star in Westerns, and they're in the time where Westerns are kind of going out of style, I would say. or TV Westerns. TV are Westerns are going yeah. out of style. So he's having trouble finding work. He used to kind of be a big shot. Now he plays like the bad guy in like one one episode of a tv show and all this stuff which is really interesting and then he's always with his stuntman who's played by brad pitt who doesn't really do too much stunt work for him now he's just kind of his driver yeah cliff and it's the two of them and then the parallel story that's going on is with margot robbie who plays a real person that lives sharon tate and once people knew that Sharon Tate was going to be in this movie, we knew what it was going to be about. In real life, Sharon Tate was murdered by the Manson family, as well as a few people, a few of her friends that she was with at her home. So I think when Tarantino first announced that this was the plot of the movie, there's a lot of anticipation for it, good or bad, to see how that kind of unravels. So he has done kind of false histories in the past with Inglorious Bastards. And Django Unchained. Yeah, but Django's not, like, based on one specific... Sure, yeah, okay. I guess neither is Inglourious Bastards. But the point is, he's done false histories in the past. In Inglourious Bastards, they kill Hitler. Mm-hmm. Django is just its own craziness. It's just a, it's a slave, a former slave who becomes empowered. Yeah, but it's not, like, about a real person. Right. Where Inglourious Bastards has, you know, Hitler's it's, right, real it's person. Right, it's set in the backdrop of real people. Yeah. Yeah. So... Nobody really knew what was going to happen with whether they're actually going to show the Sharon Tate murders or they're going to create some kind of fictionalized ending for this same for this situation. And the title is a hint for that. 
Yeah, that's true. It's literally called Once Upon a Time. Well, and a hint, too, is that Sharon Tate's family agreed to have this movie be made. Um, So I don't think they would have shown it if it was going to be about her murder, because the most gruesome part of her murder is that she was eight months pregnant at the time. So nobody really wants to see that, I don't think. And I don't think that her... I think it was her sister who kind of sat, sat down with... Quentin Tarantino. With Tarantino to go over what was going to happen in the movie, how Sharon Tate was going to be portrayed and things like that. Who notably came out after the film and praised the portrayal of Yeah, she her said sister. that it... I forget exactly what she said, but something about it. Like, it gave her goosebumps to see Margot Robbie on the screen because it reminded her so much of her sister. Right. Which was really interesting that even though the alternate ending that ends up happening in the film has gotten... Some criticism. I mean, I think this movie is generally very highly... Well-received. Yeah, it's very well-received. So this is just a select group of people, even though that alternate ending to the real-life story wasn't received great by everyone. I think it's very telling that her own family is okay with it and good with it. Right. So the way that Tarantino tells a lot of his stories happens in this movie as well. And what it is, is that you have your two main characters, and that's, in this case, it's the two leading men of the film, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt as Rick and Cliff. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the movie is about Rick's kind of fall from grace. He was part of that Western show, Bounty Law, that he was on, which is akin to a lot of 50s and 60s Western television like I'm personally pretty familiar with the show Gunsmoke that was on during that time, which is a fantastic old serialized Western show. But as his career has kind of declined, he, like you said, is now working in these episodic kind of television shows. And a large portion of the second act of this film is him on a set in one of these one-off television performances as a villain on on this show. And so one of the things that is really interesting is he is starting to view himself himself as a has-been. He drinks too much. He's He's been propositioned to go shoot spaghetti westerns in, the, in Europe during this time, which is akin to what Clint Eastwood actually did in his true career, because that's when you got movies like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, when he went over to Europe and shot the spaghetti westerns by Italian filmmakers. And so Rick is in the same kind of position where Al Pacino, who makes a cameo appearance as a movie producer in this movie, says, Rick, you know, you can't just be on serialized TV being the villain getting beaten up by the hero every time. You need to rehabilitate your movie image and make some right. more successful and it, films. It touches on a big thing of this movie, which is public image. And he's basically saying the audience keeps seeing you get defeated by all of these younger up and coming stars. Then. Right. That that's how they're going to view you and your public image is that you know you're on the decline and they're on the rise, and that's just yes. one of the com- the commentary that they make within the the story. But then there's also just an overarching commentary in the choice of actors they used and playing off of the public image of the actors that they chose to be in this movie. Which Tarantino hasn't really done before, I think, outside of maybe using Jennifer Jason Lee in The Hateful Eight in the way that he used her. This is definitely a use of an actor like Leonardo DiCaprio, who every time he's in a film, it's widely anticipated because he's not in a lot of stuff anymore. He's very selective with his his projects, and he's great again in this. But then he also, Brad Pitt, America's you know affable 
charismatic leading man, he dares us not to like Brad Pitt. He makes Brad Pitt's character a alleged, almost presumed wife murderer. I don't think he tries murderer. to get you not to like him. I think I think it's a reference to the fact that stars and their public image have so much power that even if there's this terrible accusation hanging over someone, that they can still be very successful. I think that's a fine point. Because too, yeah. And not that not that Cliff was really particularly successful. He's kind of a failed stuntman because now he's like fifty and not doing anything. Right. And it does affect him getting jobs. But an interesting note is that the situation that Cliff is in, where people think he killed his wife, they were on a boat and you know she drowned or something like that, is mm-hmm. the exact story of how Natalie Wood died, and everyone on the boat with her. Robert Wagner. Robert Wagner was her husband, and Christopher Walken was there. A couple of other semi-famous people on the boat where she mysteriously drowned. Right. And the, they do say Cliff's wife's name in that and scene, Natalie. and her name is Natalie. So it's a very clear callback to that and how it didn't affect those stars, even though there's always been speculation. They reopened that case. case a lot of times. So I thought that was really interesting. And just as you would expect with the title of the film, this is all an ode to Hollywood and just constant references to real life events or... Well, that's what I was going to say, too, is that that by setting this movie in the end of the 1960s, where there was this sea change of including some of the hippie anti-war culture into filmmaking... A lot of the classic American stars and the way American cinema and television was viewed at the time started to kind of fade out of focus, which is literally a, an exact thing of what happens to Rick's career. And so Tarantino otherizes the hippies in this movie, who are also largely in this movie connected to the Manson family, right? because he... He says very, in a derogatory kind of tone, you know, the, these hippies, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt both don't like the hippies. Right. And what that does is that represents, I think, kind of Tarantino acknowledging the the ch- swelling change of the fact that the television that maybe he grew up watching and that he idolized and that influenced him as a filmmaker, which should be clear by the fact that he made movies like Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight, going out of style and changing into what ended up becoming kind of a progressive movement in the early 70s. And so I think that that's interesting. But I think at the same time, using it through the lens of Sharon Tate is, I think, also interesting because in this movie, he uses Sharon Tate and also Roman Polanski, who was a very successful filmmaker before he had his own legal issues, Happened well, in the and it's her States. husband at this time. Right. Where the story kind of plays with the idea of, well, if Sharon Tate didn't die, where would her career have gone? Because what you see is you see Sharon Tate being very sympathetic to the hippies. She drives one to her destination. She parties with them at the Playboy Mansion. So I think the interesting thing here is that Margot Robbie's portrayal of Sharon Tate is kind of the heart of this movie. Is Her, her star is on the ascension. And what I think is maybe the most emotionally affecting scene in the movie is where she goes into the theater to see herself in The Wrecking Crew. Right, and she is so happy with not only the movie itself, but with all the the people who are watching's reaction to her character. Right, who like her. Right. Right, exactly. 
And that all, I think, was done really effectively. And so I think a lot of the primary criticism, if there is any, that's been uh, levied against this movie is that you cast Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, you tell this story which is adjacent to the Manson family, and you don't really give her many lines. But to me, I kind of viewed her as the one of the emotional centers of the movie because yeah i think her portrayal was very effective i i I feel like i connected to her more than i connected to the other two characters even though she wasn't in the movie as much yeah and wasn't talking as much but i still felt like i understood who she was and that what happened to her was a tragedy and they kind of romanticized her and made her a little mysterious because she did die she in real life she passed away and we don't know what she would have been like and Obviously, people knew her at that time, but that was 50 years ago. And I also find it very telling that when... So how do the characters' arcs end in this? Cliff, a previously derided individual for this alleged killing of his wife, does a pretty heroic act in saving his friend and his friend's wife, Leo's wife, from a home invasion. Then they finally are able to profess their friendship and their love for each other as Cliff who sustains a minor injury, gets carted off to the hospital at the end of this thing. Leo is very comforting to him and says he's going to visit him in the hospital. They kind of acknowledge their friendship more than just their working relationship with each other. Yeah. And then Sharon Tate, Margot Robbie, is Leo's next-door neighbor, invites him up for drinks at her house, basically saying to Leonardo DiCaprio, you can have an in in our rising film culture. Right. And so to me, the negative portrayal of the rising style of of filmmaking, like movies like The Wrecking Crew in the the late 60s, it kind of ends up being something that Leonardo DiCaprio ends up accepting. And there's kind of this overarching thing where, you know, Sharon Tate buys the book, or Tom Hardy's book, Tess of the Durbervilles, for her husband, Roman Polanski, and that was rumored to be one of Polanski's next projects to cast Sharon Tate in Tess of the Durbervilles, which would have kickstarted her career, like for real, because right. it was this huge starring role in classic English literature. There's this idea, I guess, by maybe Rick becoming friends with them that he ends up accepted into a next level of his career. And I think by the end of the movie, Tarantino makes a very positive experience for everybody except the Mansons, basically. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it just leaves every all the possibilities open of what the stars could have done had this not happened. But I also thought that the last shot that you're kind of extrapolating all this from where they walk up the driveway together is also an ominous shot. As they're walking up the driveway, they the way that the camera follows them is almost the way that the camera would follow someone who's watching someone, like a stalker-ish type vibe. Because they kind of go behind the trees and go behind the garage as they're walking up so that you don't even see them in the frame. And then they pop out again on the other side once you get through, once they go further up the driveway to the house. So I thought it was kind of like, this is, you know, what if everything turned out well, but... You know, don't forget there's still this ominous cloud hanging over that, like, there's still the Manson family. This still isn't really what happened, and it doesn't mean that everything's going to be great. Right. I No, I agree with that, too, because obviously Charles Manson and the family is still out there. And I did think that the most tense scene and maybe the best sequence in the film is when Brad Pitt takes a hitchhiker played by Margaret Qualley back to to the ranch. Yeah. And What's the ranch called? Spawn ranch, Spawn, ranch, which is where a lot of these serialized westerns were filmed on this television lot that's now dilapidated. 
run by a man named George Spawn. Bruce Dern makes a cameo appearance as Yeah, that Spahn. whole sequence of events where they're at Spawn Ranch is very tense and effective. Where Cliff kind of, his character, he's very, lack of a better word, manly. Like, he's just kind of an old-fashioned He's just so comfortable guy, with himself. And that... he, he's not afraid of these Manson no. people. So he just kind of walks around the place like he owns it. He's insisting on seeing Bruce Dern's character to make sure that he's not being held here against his will. Yep. And even though they are taking advantage of him, the guy is pretty much fine with it because yeah. they're, you know, he's he needs help anyway. So he doesn't mind it. But yeah, that was a great sequence of events. I really thought at any minute anything could happen because it is a Tarantino movie. So you kind of can expect that anyone would die at any moment in some gruesome way. So I think that there is, I think there's an argument to be made that not only does Tarantino make it scary, but he also kind of makes the Mansons a little bit comical because he makes Cliff so just physically impervious. Yeah. Well, I think part of what he's trying to say is that, or not say, but the way he wants to portray them in a way that makes them seem. It's not flattering at all, which is good. Right. Yeah, which is good. And like, it's clear that, that that's how he feels. And he wishes that this tragedy hadn't have happened and that the Manson family didn't kill Sharon Tate and the others. So he's not portraying them, obviously, in a positive light. But I do love... you want to talk about some of the criticism that the movie got and if we agree or disagree with it? I do. I just want to say one more thing. Leonardo DiCaprio in this is great. He's always Everyone's great. Everyone's great in it. Leo's yeah. great. Brad is great. And Margot Robbie is great. I think it's I think it's easy to look at Leonardo DiCaprio and see how famous he is and how much money he has and you know how eccentric he is and some of the stories that come out about him about his personal life and all that kind of stuff but I just think that Leonardo DiCaprio is maybe the best living actor. I mean, I don't, I think that I there's I don't think anyone thinks he's not a great actor. No, I know that, but I just think like I think that he gets chronically underappreciated because he's not in a bunch of stuff, but he basically has become the I'm going to appear in a movie once every 3 years and I'm going to be the best performance you see all year. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, he's the best performance we've seen all year, probably. You know? I mean, he's fantastic in this. Yeah. The scene where he really, where he gets mad at himself in his trailer, curses himself out, hits himself, throws stuff, and then psychs himself into delivering a great performance in the TV show he's in. It's amazing. Leo Leonardo DiCaprio, who's the one of the best actors of all time, delivers a performance where he's a normal guy, he's an actor acting badly and then an actor acting really well all in the span of like five minutes of each other I mean that's why I love this movie is that I feel like we could probably talk about it for hours and hours because every single scene has so much depth to it yeah I mean like you were saying before they spend like 30 minutes just in the sequence you're talking about where he is he's on one of the shows yeah he's on one of the shows and he's you know trying to give a good performance he's frustrated with himself for where he's at in his career for drinking too much for maybe picking bad roles getting that's these possibility. Bit parts yeah and stuff like that but okay yeah why don't you why don't we talk about some of the criticism yeah so i think one of the main criticisms is we talked about the sharon tate thing a little bit and i think we both agree that I thought it was well done. I I don't think that because she didn't have a ton of lines means that, you know, she was less effective of, of a character. I think that that was the intention. It was clear that it was the intention that she didn't have a lot of lines. She was she supposed was kind of to an be enigma. Yeah, exactly. And represent more than just her own self, but right. just the rising tide of that type of star. Yeah, or just, you know, Quentin Tarantino's fascination with 
with stardom and like yeah. the the potential of a star but the other side of the kind of fem- controversy feministish sure. type controversy is the violence against women so i guess what people are talking about is that cliff kills his wife and it's no big deal which we kind of talked about how that's supposed to represent something else and that also in real life yeah that well yes it, it's a callback to something that happened in real life but it's supposed to be a commentary on it it's not supposed to make it okay that he killed his wife like i don't think no one's trying to say that but right that's one of the things and then also the brutal slaying of the manson family folks at the end of the movie two of which are women mm-hmm. but to me if you don't want to see that kind of stuff then don't go see a tarantino movie because that kind of that level of violence is in everything. And I think it teetered on the edge of too much, but it was the only scene in the movie that had any violence. Well, okay. I agree with you. I think I think that if you were to switch it around, though, and if the trio had been two men and a woman and they were just back no, in I'm the not, same No, I'm way. not even saying the female aspect of it being too women and one man i'm just saying in general it did i thought the violence itself teetered on the edge of too much yeah yeah sure he he just can't resist every third act of i don't think that the feminist like the i i don't think that that's a route you can take with this scene because there is a guy in there who gets brutally murdered as and a guy who gets beat up really badly yeah so it just happens to be that two of them are women it doesn't i i don't i don't know i didn't understand that that no. criticism but yeah i don't know i think in all of his movies he plays with the the lines there in terms of showing extreme violence and yeah. sometimes it goes overboard sometimes it's just right yeah some you know usually his movies have a lot more violence than this so i think it was honestly his most tame movie overall but that scene specifically if you compare yeah. it to just other scenes of his movies it's brutal i think like, there were points where i had I was cringing and looking away, which for yeah. me it says a lot. I think that what he was doing was, I think the way that the he made the violence extreme because that's what he does in the third act of several of his films. He, he's done it in every movie since Jackie Brown, basically. Kill Bill, Inglorious Bastards, Django, and Hatefully all have disgusting, violent endings. Yeah. So if we take that, and then we also think about what Tarantino wants to do with something like that. You know he likes the violence to be pulpy and shocking. And so what he does in this movie is he makes one of the characters who Cliff beats up a woman. Right. And so I think that if Tarantino was being offensive in the way that this is portrayed, I think he does it by accident because I think his job here is to make it as shocking as possible and that's the route that he chose to to take I I agree with you I think it's it's about the violence overall more than it's about the politics of sex and gender in terms of the way he casts this movie yeah and I think just because we are trying to get and which I totally agree with more female representation and female stories told doesn't mean that we can't have a movie where two of the stars are men Right, I I think that's right too. I I agree with you. I think and Margot there... Robbie is top billing for this as well. Just because she doesn't speak a lot of lines doesn't mean that she's an incredibly powerful presence in the movie. I mean, she she's as an actress, she 
brings a power with her in basically every movie that she's in. I mean, even even movies where she's lower parts, she commands the screen. Yeah. She has that kind of presence on screen. I completely agree. Yeah, I think um, I'm definitely for more female-centric movies. I actually tend to enjoy characters with lead females more, just as just my own personal taste. Like, I'm thinking about a lot of my favorite performances. A lot of them are leading female performances. But uh, I think here, Tarantino wanted to tell a story about an aging Western star. That aging Western star would be a man. And therefore, he cast Leonardo DiCaprio. And that I don't think it goes much further than that. I don't think there's any kind of deep-seated mistake that Tarantino's making in this movie. I mean, you look at the other two movies we talked about in this podcast, they each have one lead, and each of the leads are female. I think that there is a reckoning happening in Hollywood. I don't think it's fair to criticize Tarantino for what largely has been his style since 1992 or whatever. Uh, And the only other thing with controversies I would want to touch on is the Bruce Lee thing. I thought that if anything actually holds water, Bruce Lee was arrogant and obnoxious in this movie, and it was annoying. I don't know. I liked the fight scene. I thought it was funny that Cliff threw him into a car. The shock value of it. I don't know anything about Bruce Lee. I've never seen him in anything, and I don't care for that kind of movie. movie. So I didn't even cross my mind that it would ever be an issue. I think that all the things that are coming up about this movie are just because people like to nitpick. And there's not much to nitpick in this movie because, in my opinion, it's nearly perfect. So they're picking up things and extrapolating them and making them bigger than they are. And also because Quentin Tarantino, as a person, is very controversial. So when he comes out with a movie, people are going to have something to say about it. Sure. And I think, you know, it is what it is. I just think a lot of this stuff gets in the way. And I don't know if that average people really talk about this or believe this, but... I know for me, as someone who loves movies and consumes a lot of movie-related entertainment, podcasts, videos, whatever, analysis, analyses, I get really annoyed when the primary discussion is about the social constructs and not actually about the movie making. He completely recreated 1969 Hollywood. He made it look gorgeous. Yeah, I don't think that in the long run or when the Oscar conversations start ramping up that it's going to affect it. I think it's still going to be a front runner for a lot of Oscar nominations. and I want to watch it again. It was three hours long and I would love to watch it again. Yeah, and it's not like it's Green Book. You know, it's not like it's this patent dishonest portrayal that it, it, it preaches these wrong values and it has a white savior complex. It's like the white, the lead white characters are exceedingly flawed and complete jackasses. Yeah, that's movie. their whole thing. Yeah. So I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing where this lands because this, to me, if I could vote today, it would be my best picture Yeah, pick. I mean, it's by far the best movie that's come out this year so far. Sure. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get other stuff and there's going to be other... Terrence Malick has a movie and there's Ford versus Ferrari and blah, blah, blah. But right now... Not excited for that. Yeah, I mean... Ford versus Ferrari. Well, it's got Christian Bale. That's just not what I want to see. I think that this, this to me, is is about as good as any movie Tarantino's ever made. It's not as good as Pulp Fiction, but the other ones... I would put this up against Reservoir Dogs. I would put this up against Inglorious Bastards. I've never actually seen Reservoir Dogs. I really did like Inglorious Bastards, but this is just up my alley. I, I like the stylization of it. I like when you want to be there with them. I uh, This is a five for me. Yeah, five I out think of five. I would give it a five, too. Yeah, this is, yeah, it's one of the best 
it's the best movie of the year. It's one of the best movies of the last, you know, five years or so. I'm yep. excited to see the legacy of it as we move forward. All right. Thanks for listening.